Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Stephen Fabian, the author of Making Identity on the Swahili Coast, Urban Life, Community, and Belonging in Bagamoyo, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019 as a part of the series African Identities, Past and Present. Dr. Stephen Fabian is a former associate professor of history at the State University of New York at Fridoni. He was president of the Tanzania Studies Association from 2015 to 2017 and currently serves as co-chair of Radical History Review. Dr. Fabian is currently a teacher of African and world history at Horace Mann School in New York City. By discussing making identity on the Swahili coast, we will explore Bagamoyo, situated at a crossroad of trade in the late 19th century and later the economic capital of German East Africa, the thriving caravan port town of Bagamoyo in Tanzania is one of many diverse communities on the East African coast which has been characterized as Swahili. Seeking an alternate framework for understanding community and identity, Stephen Fabian combines extensive archival sources from Africa and European archives alongside fieldwork in Bagamoyo to move beyond the category of Swahili as it has been traditionally understood. Revealing how townspeople, Africans, Arabs, Indians, and Europeans alike created a local vocabulary, which referenced aspects of everyday town life and bond them together as members of a shared community, this first extensive examination of Bagamoyo's history from the pre-colonial era to independence uses a new lens of historical analysis to emphasize the importance of place in creating local urban identities and suggests a broader understanding of these concepts historically along the Swahili coast in the Indian Ocean world. Welcome, Steve, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for inviting me. It's, a, it's an honor to be able to speak about it. Great. Um, we would like to start off by uh, learning about yourself, if you can say a few words about where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested uh, in African history and the Swahili world, uh, and if you had any information mentors you would like to mention. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, in Canada, in the Pacific Northwest, um, which in, in some cases felt a little bit isolated from the rest of the world. Um, I had a um, 
uh, an uncle, my namesake, who was a, a world traveler, and he would come and visit uh, from time to time, talking about different places. So from a young age, I, I was really uh, kind of interested in, in the world uh, beyond my window. Um, I uh, got into African history in a bit of a roundabout way. Um, I spent a few years living in Vienna, Austria, uh, as an au pair, looking after uh, four, four boys who went to a, an international school where the language of instruction was English. And so I was there to help sort of reinforce uh, their use of that. And while I was there, I, I met uh, another au pair, a young woman from South Africa, an Afrikaner named Izan. And um, we had some conversations. And this was around 93, 94, when South Africa was heading to its first democratic elections, uh, which, um, of course, Nelson Mandela would become the first black president. And I remember talking to her about that. And she often said that she felt the world had misunderstood and misjudged the Afrikaner people. And um, I did not know much about the history of South Africa. I knew, of course, that uh, apartheid uh, was was an evil, but I didn't have sort of the resources to debate that with her. And so that conversation got me uh, down a rabbit hole where I began reading about anything I could on South African history. And once that started, I, I never looked back. And so, you know, I, I returned back home and I went to the University of Victoria and took any courses I could on, on the topic, starting with um, my first African history professor, Dr. John Duder, who, who gave me a, a really good background in, in African history. And then um, it, you know, it was enough for me to know that this is something I wanted to do. And I wound up going to graduate school, doing my, my master's and then my doctorate at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, and there, uh, my, my main mentor was my master's and PhD supervisor, Dr. Phil Zatranuk, uh, who himself is not an East Africanist. He's a, a Nigerian historian. However, thematically, um, Phil works on issues of identity and so uh, was a pretty good match. And he was very good at taking me under his wing and... Um, uh, giving me uh, a sort of sense of confidence in myself that I, I could do this research. Um, and it was under his tutelage that he suggested that I don't do South African history, which was my original interest. And instead, the, the fact that I could speak and read um, and understand German, German fluently from my time in Austria, he suggested that I explore uh, the German colonies um, uh, instead, uh, because they, they had not been a, a very well-researched um, period of, of colonial history, um, uh, especially the German East Africa period. And that, that made a lot of sense to me and, um, and ultimately made things uh, easier. So um, other than Phil, I would say not, not directly, but I, uh, I can really remember reading the work of Jonathan Glassman, his, uh, his well-known book, Feasts and Riot, um, which made a huge impression on me. And of course, is also about the Swahili coast, the Tanzanian uh, section, the Imrima. Uh, I just was, it was probably one of the first monographs that I just couldn't put down. It was just so rich 
uh, in detail. I, I've read it multiple times, um, often finding new things uh, when I, I look into it. Uh, and I have had the pleasure of uh, meeting and, and speaking with uh, uh, Jonathan Glassman uh, since reading that book. So, yeah, between those two, um, they sort of led me down the path to, to writing this uh, history of Bagamoyle and the exploration of uh, spatial identity. Great. Thank you for sharing uh, these experiences that you had. Um, let's turn now to the book. Uh, I'd like to ask you, how did the book idea develop then? Uh, I understand it was based on your dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, so if you would like to share some insights from your archival and oral history research uh, process, what was it like uh, and also the writing experience? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Um, so the, the concept for the book I believe it came out of my master's research, which was an examination of um, contemporary travel literature. So I'm comparing and contrasting three different periods of Western travel literature on East Africa, starting with the late 19th century, then the independence period, and then finally the early, um, the late 20th century, early uh, 21st century. Um, and in exploring the, the first period, the, the late 19th century, uh, is when I first became uh, familiar with Bagamoyo. It just comes up repeatedly as the, the starting off point of European um, explorers into the interior of Africa. So, so the starting uh, point and end point. And they, their characterizations of the town really captured my imagination. It, it really seemed like a... Uh, a fun place to be like there was just such a diversity of peoples in, in this uh, poor town from from all parts of the African interior and then the Indian Ocean world. Um, uh, just a lot of activity going on, especially with the Nyamwezi caravan porters. It just captured my imagination. And I had wondered why I didn't know more about it. This seems like, like such an important place um, in uh in economic history uh, that I hadn't heard more of it. And, um, and of course, that's because, you know, Dar es Salaam later became the uh, economic capital under German colonialism. And so um, as I went into my PhD studies, I, I knew I wanted to be, I wanted to do an urban history. Um, and I was fascinated by what became a Bagamoyle as Dar es Salaam became it was developed as the new capital of german east africa how was such a a powerful economic entrepot you know marginalized or sidelined what was that process because um, dar es salaam was was nothing more than a, a village um uh up and up until the german colonial period um so, you know, my supervisor, uh, Phil Zatronuk, said, you're probably not going to be able to do an entire PhD uh, based on that question, but, um, you know, use that as a starting point and then, and then see what uh, happens from there. Um, and so uh, um, when I went to Tanzania to begin my archival research, uh, as I was reading these documents about the, the history of Bagamoyo, um, I was struck by how often the town's inhabitants were described by their individual communities, that they were not uh, generalized as just the Swahili. Um, 
there, there's no question that Bagamoyo is firmly a part of the Swahili world. Um, but it's not like this designation kept coming up in, in the files, whether this was English, French, German, uh, and uh, even Swahili. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of uh, then the, the question became not so much why didn't the Germans use Bagamoyo as their capital? Why did they build an entire new capital? It sort of began the research question began to shift towards, well, how did this really heterogeneous community understand themselves as members of a shared community? Um, uh, there wasn't really a history of conflict between the, the, the different communities that made up the town. Um, and so that sort of became uh, more of, of my focus. And, and ultimately, those two questions are, were, were very much interrelated. Um, and the first question, of course, forms chapter four uh, of my book. Um, my, my experience in, in, in dealing with the archives um, yeah, so I, I spent time in, in Zanzibar. If I, if I want pre-colonial documents about the Swahili coast uh, in Bagamoyo, you're more likely to find those in the British, French, and German uh, consular archives in the Zanzibar National Archives. So I spent a couple of months there looking at the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. And then once the Germans take over, the, the Tanzanian National Archives provided the bulk uh, of uh, the colonial history. And then, of course, later when the British uh, take it over after World War I. Um, um, and my experiences there were, were, were quite positive. Uh, I met a, a really good community of East Africanists uh, there um, who, were, who were very helpful. Um, you know, there were some, some experiences that were a bit frustrating. Um, I had to learn to read German all over again because I quickly learned that the Germans wrote in a different script in the 19th century than what we're used to in the, the late 20th, early 21st century. So I often had to kind of transcribe sources during my time in the archives. And then later when I got home, I uh, had to figure out how to uh, transcribe them into a, a way that I could understand them. Um, and then there were frustrations because uh, there wasn't as much material from the German period as I'd like uh, because the, the Germans had destroyed or hidden a lot of their documents um, in the World War I period. So there, there were some gaps there um, that I had to find other ways to uh, make up for. And I had a really great stroke of luck um, while I was doing my research in Bagamoyo itself. Um, I spent some time at the, uh, the old Catholic mission, which had been there since the 1860s. And they themselves have an archive of their own. And uh, they presented me with a uh, book of transcribed letters written in, in French and German um, during the uh, uh, so-called Bushiri uprising of 1888 to 1890. It was just this incredible account through all these letters of what happened. Um, and these uh, had never been used before, not even in, in Jonathan Glassman's uh, work, uh, Feasts and Riot. Um, they had only been uh, used in a 1982 dissertation uh, written in Dutch uh, by a member of the, the Catholic order, um, and so uh, it was a privilege to, to be able to use these um, rich documents for the first time. So they really uh, uh, helped shape uh, aspects of my research when um, German documents were, were missing. 
And then later I, I spent some time in, in London, Paris and Berlin, um, as well as some archives in the United States, uh, just double checking sources and copies of things that might've been missing in Tanzania, uh, uh, finding some extra information in those European archives. So yeah, it really had to cast my net far and wide, especially for the kind of content that I was covering and this, this approach. Um, was a, a little bit unconventional. Um, so it, it took some time to sift through it, but uh, uh, I found most of what I needed. And then finally, uh, Ahmed, then there were the oral interviews as well. And um, those I conducted in Bagamoya with the help of two uh, uh, research uh, assistants, uh, Nzige Kawaka and Kenny Mleke. Um, both who were uh, proficient in Swahili and English. My Swahili at the time was was not good enough to conduct uh, interviews at that level. Um, unfortunately, Dalhousie lacked a African languages program as as, as good as their their history and political science program as in African studies. Um, uh, lacked in um, language translation. So using them, we were able to locate. Uh, um, a few dozen uh, elders in the town who were willing to, to speak with me. And um, we worked together in conducting the interviews. Uh, Kenny and Zige then uh, transcribed those interviews. And then I was fortunate enough to meet a Tanzanian international student at Dalhousie when I returned back to Halifax, uh, Patricia Luyangi, who was actually uh, uh, from the, the district uh, Bagamoyo is loca located in. So she was able to uh, even understand the dialect uh, of my uh, interviewees. So with the help of those three assistants, I, I was able to, to conduct these interviews and made a world of difference um, in understanding, you know, their understanding of how Bagamoyo identity was formed um, and, and, what story, which stories that I'd found in the archives resonated with them. If I, if I mentioned a particular story, if I asked them questions about a particular story that I found in archival material, um, their, their eyes might light up and then they would start talking very excitedly uh, about these. So what I found in the archives was kind of like a key to, uh, unlocking, um, uh, their own stories or their own rem remembrances, memories, and understandings of those events. Uh, so it was nice to kind of come full circle with the archival and, and oral material. Indeed, and they complement each other, I think, in a, in a very uh, profitable way. Um, in, in the preface, you share some of your experiences in becoming Mzungu of Bagamoyo, which, which means in Swahili, the white person of Bagamoyo. Um, what drew you um, to Bagamoyo and uh, its society as a social field and a subject of study? I mean, you've mentioned some of the uh, scholarship lacunas and the way, you know, you wanted to uh, integrate this gap. Um, but why did you focus on this particular town? And in that regard, I would like to know what kind of history of space and place offer uh, to, to, to the study of the Swahili world? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, again, uh, the, my interest in the, in the town certainly came from just uh, the impression that 19th century Europeans wrote about it. I just it, it just really captured my imagination of what a bustling place of diversity it was. Um, I, I really began to appreciate uh, just how cosmopolitan these uh, these Swahili towns were. 
Um, and, and just my curiosity of how such a place of economic importance that captured the attention of the United States, Germany, France, England, India, the Arab world, um, why had it sort of fallen off the map uh, in, in terms of its 19th century uh, significance? So it was kind of like just a historical mystery. What happened to, to Bagamoyo? Um, and that's what drew me to the town in the first place. Um, yeah, the that uh, nickname Mzungu wa Bagamoyo uh, came about because uh, I was living in, in Dar es Salaam during my research time uh, there in a, a suburb, a northern suburb called Kijitonyama. And uh, there was a main bus station called Mwenge, uh, and I would walk to it. And from there, I would take a bus, uh, actually somewhat illegally. They, the buses were not allowed to leave from Mwenge to Bagamoyo, but that was more convenient for me. And clearly, it was more convenient for a lot of Africans traveling between Dar es Salaam and Bagamoyo. But after a time, um, eventually the, the the men who ran the the bus to Bagamoyo would see me coming, and there there weren't there weren't a lot of uh, white men uh, coming to the the bus station, and I was always going to the same place. So th- they would see me and wave me over, "Hey, Mzungu wa Bagamoyo," and, uh, and and bring me towards their their bus. Uh, in Bagamoyo itself, though, I was Buana Marefu, uh, Mister Tall. Um, as I stand six foot three, so I had a, a different identity when I was in the town. But um, to the to the bus drivers, I, I was in Mzungu wa Bagamoyo. So in, in terms of why I would choose Bagamoyo as a place to study space and place and, and its significance, again, I was interested in learning about place attachment. How do people historically, especially in the African context, understand themselves as members of uh, an urban space? How do they identify themselves? How do they attach themselves to towns and cities rather than a ethnic community or or something uh, to that effect? I believe that in the the popular imagination of the West, more generally speaking, not so much academics, but um, the popular understanding that Africans are, are often seen in uh, quote unquote tribal identities uh, as a result of, of Western media, uh, movies, TV shows, cartoons, news stories, and so forth. Um, you know, this ethnic group versus that ethnic group, predominantly, for example, the Hutus versus the Tutsis. I mean, it was always sort of the sense of um, the ways in which Africans fought each other or conflicted with one each other. And um, I, you know, their African urban history is, is very old. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to do a study that focused on a pre-colonial town um, in which uh, Africans of, of different backgrounds uh, interacted with peoples from other parts of the world and try to understand how a shared commonality, uh, commonality evolved. And so Swahili, Swahili port towns seemed an obvious place to, to explore that. Um, and, uh, and Bagamoya was no exception, being uh, very diverse. Um, and so, you know, just as, as Westerners, we, we do identify ourselves predominantly by the, the towns and cities in which we grew up. It's one of our first things that we identify ourselves with. And I was not surprised when I went to Tanzania to, to hear Tanzanians identify themselves 
but where they were from. Because I was so close to the University of Dar es Salaam, I often took buses and transportation uh, where students were, were using these lines to get to and from the university campus itself. Um, they would always identify with the, the different places around the country that they came from. Um, and I would, you know, I would actually have to push to ask for their, their ethnic identity um, uh, if, if I wanted to learn that. And so why couldn't this have been, uh, why couldn't this form of identity uh, be historical too? Um, in Swahili history, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here uh, in terms of, of answering questions, but um, in terms of Swahili history, um, our, our concept is Swahili is this cosmopolitan identity in which Africans, Indians, and Arabs all borrowed from each other and kind of blended into this new cosmopolitan identity um, that was based on, on different characteristics. And so this particular community looms very large um, in East African history, even as scholars uh, acknowledge that there were other communities, it's usually the focal point is these Swahili communities. And it just seemed to kind of homogenize them um, that, uh, that, you know, this was a Swahili, you know, borrows from, from different identities. They kind of merge into one. Um, but I, but in, in reading about Bagamoyo, I understood that they were just one community out of many. There were these others that existed uh, and were identified. So I wanted to learn more about them. I wanted to learn more about these interrelationships between the Swahili and the other various communities that made up these towns, rather than seeing these other communities as peripheral or transient, um, that, that sort of thing. So taking, taking a framework that began in a city itself rather than Swahili culture struck me as a way of understanding how these diverse communities um, understood each other as members of a shared place. That, that's beautifully put. And I think that's really highlighted the book's contribution to the series, African Identities Past and Present. Uh, let's now turn to the book and its chapters, uh, Making Identity on the Swahili Coast, consists of six chapters divided in two parts with an introduction and epilogue, along with many captivating photos, which I haven't seen before, ethnographic dialogues uh, between you and the interlocutors, and a useful glossary. Part one is becoming Bagamoyo, and part two is fitting into their way of life, local community, and colonial control. In part one, what are the Swahili coast cultural contours, and how do you situate it between the African mainland and the Indian Ocean world? What can Bagamoyo offer to elucidate this question? if you can think about the tension between the, the local and the oceanic? Great question. Thank you so much for asking that, Ahmed. Um, so in terms of the, the contours of the Swahili world, um, the, the Swahili are really important to explaining to our students uh, in high school or university just how connected Africa was with the greater world. There is a sort of predominant understanding that Africa was cut off until... Uh, the Europeans began sailing down the coast and, and uh, integrating them and things like the transatlantic uh, slave trade and, and then imperialism itself. And so, um, you know, if, if we 
take a, a note from Eric Gilbert's and Jonathan Reynolds' textbook, Africa and World History, you know, that we, we go to great lengths to show how throughout history, right from the very beginnings, um, African uh, Africans and the African continent are very much interconnected with global processes of society formation, uh, religious transformation, economic trade, um, political conquest, and, and what have you. Um, and so the Swahili world plays a very important part of that because we have a, a region of Africa that for a very long time, for, for millennia before the, the Europeans came around, were very much connected with the uh, Arab and Asian uh, worlds. But um, and, and the Swahili culture itself, like I said earlier, has, has been defined as sort of a regional form of cosmopolitanism, one that borrows from African, Arab and, and South Asian uh cultural traditions. The language itself is a kind of composite of multiple languages, a trade language to facilitate trade language between these different peoples of the Indian Ocean Rim. Um, and so uh, in terms of our understanding of Swahili culture, we, we have a number of scholars who have, have done a really good job in showing that uh, how firmly based in African culture and society, Swahili is that the language itself is a uh, is based in a grammar that comes from uh, one of the Bantu languages, uh, and it borrows vocabulary from from other parts. That this this is a culture that is firmly grounded, firmly rooted in in, in the African coastline. Um, the Swahili takes on all kinds of uh, cosmopolitan characteristics. It's seen as an, a middleman culture between two worlds, like you identified, the African mainland and uh, the Indian Ocean world. It's seen as a very urbane, a one that's it's located in these port towns on the coast. Um, it's one that uh, is part of the Islamic world. Um, and the sense of a kind of urban Islamic civilization so, yeah, this is the Swahili port towns kind of straddle uh, these two worlds. But I would argue that um, it is still one in which focuses more uh, on the outward side of that, the, the oceanic world than the mainland. Um, my, my research um, sort of showed that the, the hinterland and upcountry Africans uh, have as as much significance in the construction of these and, and the importance of these Swahili towns than uh, Arab and, and Indian merchants and plantation owners. Um, we need to uh, sort of after uh, uh, Otto Quason's observations in his book Oxford Street in Accra need to start focusing more on an African cosmopolitanism rather than an oceanic one and see the ways in which Africans who came from such a diverse background of identities learned to live with one another, learned to cooperate and trade with one another uh, and through peaceful negotiations and compromises. And my book shows how those developed, you know, borrowing on, um, on another uh, scholars research such as uh, the, the concept of Utani or a joking relationship in which Africans eased tensions through intermarriage, hospitality, trying to find ways to relax potential uh, tensions between different groups uh, through uh, boxing matches and, uh, you know, uh, joking around literally. 
Um, so these would ease the tensions that would allow these different societies to work with one another to their own mutual benefit. And then second, the, the concept of showery, um, which is uh, uh, a transparent judicial system, um, which spanned multiple groups. You would, you would have uh, a way of a mechanism, if you will, um, for resolving any kind of disputes between different groups that was open to the public, that relied on different authority figures to sort of sort through their, their problems. Uh, and so these were well established before we start seeing um, the inclusion of, of Arab and, and Asian uh, communities uh, in, into, into these communities. Um, so that, that's something that I, I want to reclaim is, is to look more inward rather than outward in this, this cosmopolitanism. At the same time, um, I want to stress the importance of place that calling all these port towns that ringed around the Indian Ocean Rim a simply cosmopolitanism threatens to rob them of a unique identity. These, they do have things in common, of course, whether that's in religion, trade, um, and, and function. But at the same time, they are unique in their own way. Um, and that, that uniqueness, right, what separates one cosmopolitan town from the next is often rooted in, in, their, in their hinterlands, what it, where they're situated, where these poor towns are situated in. So we don't want to lose sight of that. Um, we don't want them to just kind of blur into just this, that they're all the same, uh, it, my, my book isn't necessarily comparative to any great length, although I do compare a few nearby uh, other Swahili towns. But the, the case study that I show in, in Bagamoyo shows that there is very much a local understanding of who they are, even as the town's inhabitants are, are very much aware of the world outside their door and how much they are connected to these other global processes. But we cosmopolitanism threatens to sort of take away these these unique identities, which I hope my book um, captures and, and emphasizes. Like we can't forget uh, that each of these places are rooted where they are located. Indeed, oceanic connectivity does not erase difference in, in any way. Um, can you sketch Bagamoyo's early history and strides from a fishing village to a trading entrepot as you alluded to? between the mainland ivory caravans and the Indian Ocean Dows, just briefly to understand how this small fishing village became this, you know, bustling uh, town. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a fascinating story because it does kind of go within a relatively short period from a local fishing village to this globally significant uh, trade entrepot. Um, so the... Uh, Bagamoyo is one of the more recent Swahili towns to be established. It's history uh, based on the scholarship of Walter Brown um, can really be dated to the late uh, 18th century, the late 1700s, when um, a local variation of the Swahili people, the Shamvi, migrated northwards, uh, Africans who had uh, uh, accepted a... Uh, Muslim identity rooted in a, a Persian uh, uh, heritage made their way down into the region of what today is Bagamoyo and settled in a region dominated by a local African group called the Zaramo. Um, and so the Zaramo were, agri for, were primarily agriculturalists. 
divided by clan. Um, they also were known for digging copal, uh, which is used in a, a variety of ways uh, across the Indian Ocean. Um, so they, they traded uh, goods with nearby Zanzibar, which had uh, was rapidly becoming a, a major economic entrepot. Um, and so the Shamvi quickly formed uh, alliances and bonds with the Zaramo, as well as other uh, hinterland African groups to kind of secure themselves, they, you know, making these alliances to secure their, their presence um, uh, by taking wives from these uh, different groups. And so they began to establish the uh, mitah or what would become sort of the neighborhoods uh, of Bagamoyo. So these sort of probably looked like villages at first, but as they grew, they, they connected with each, each other and, and interlocked and then would form the nucleus of what would become known uh, uh, as Bagamoyo from a bigger picture. And, um, and so between the two of them, I think there was small scale trade with the, um, with the, uh, with Zanzibar. And then from the interior, we, we start seeing long-distance traders. Um, we're not exactly sure when these long-distance traders came, but probably the early 1800s, based on Stephen Rockle's research, coming from the upcountry interior, the Nyamwezi and uh, the Sukuma. Uh, they would bring things like uh, animals down for hides, uh, and then, of course, ivory. Um, so they began in smaller numbers to, to trade these goods there. And that, of course, uh, piqued the interest of the uh, air powers over on Zanzibar, who then began to cultivate and uh, develop these uh, long-distance trading networks. Um, so they sent, they, they facilitated um, the immigration of, of Arabs to the coast to do things like uh, uh, lead caravans into the interior um, or to facilitate relationships with these uh, Nyamwezi caravans. And then later also Asian merchants, Asians fleeing um, the northwestern part of uh, what is today India, Pakistan, um, to, uh, to establish warehouses and, uh, and also facilitate uh, long-distance trading relationships with the upcountry. So it is, the, the trade began locally, but, you know, uh, dramatically increased with uh, Arab Omani intervention, um, uh, facilitating settlement on the uh, in Bagamoyle with uh, Arab and uh, Asian merchants. So, I, you know, within a, like less than 100 years, you know, by the 1860s, uh, Bagamoyle is, is already beginning to make its mark uh, as this uh, significant economic entrepot. It, it really does become the, the central place that ivory was transported to from the interior. It's, it's not, Rockle will mention, Stephen Rockle will mention in his research that there were, of course, other caravan towns, but none that, that took on the importance of Bagamoyo in terms of the upcountry uh, ivory trade. So that's where it really sort of takes its mark. Mm -hmm. And uh, you delve into the different communities in chapter one and two, owners of the town, uh, Shumbi, Zaramo, Nyamwezi, and Indians in chapter two, owners of the town, uh, Baloch, Omanis, and Spiritans. Um, and in these two chapters, we learn about how these different societies came to attach themselves to Bagamoyo and thus become owners of the town through uh, what you call arts of citizenship. Um, 
did they did they make different claims to the town, uh, these different communities, and what was the basis of these belonging dynamics that generated attachments to Bagamoyo? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a yeah, that's a very good question and a very complicated question. One of the things I struggled most with this dissertation and and then the book was how to juggle so many different communities, which themselves are divided into other subcategories. You have to kind of sort of choose a point at, to to limit uh, how much you're going to say about them. Um, and so sometimes I worried that I wasn't going to satisfy uh, people who study these communities more specifically because there's so much to say. But in trying to um, address my main question is how do we how do we get a common community out of multiple multiple communities? You, you kind of have to draw the line somewhere. Um, and it's also important not to take identity for granted. Um, I, I start, I break these communities down roughly chronologically the way that they appear in Bagamoyo's history, starting with the foundation, with the partnership between the Shomvi and the Zaramo, and then gradually um, uh, sort of folding in these, these different groups that come from uh, beyond uh, who later become incorporated in, into the town. So I wanted to show a, a system uh, or a history of how each community claims Bagamoyo in their own way, uh, starting with the foundation and then how latecomers adopt those uh, community standards that were already pre-established, but then bring something of their own to the community, which the older communities also adapt. So there's like a two-way street. I want to sort of show that uh, there was a, you know, uh, the comings and goings uh, that there were are different ways of understanding how uh, identity emerged. So starting with the Shomvi and the Zoramo, uh, they have the oldest claims. Their, their claims are ancestral, right? So they're the originators of the town. They established the first mitah that would later grow into the town of Bagamoyo itself. They, they are the, the fathers and mothers uh, of these towns. Um, they, they, they build the pathways, they build the first houses, um, they begin the process of uh, uh, creating trade ties into the interior and, and across the ocean. Um, they establish the first houses of worship. Um, so they, they are the ones who kind of lay the foundations. And so they have the strongest ties. And there's, you know, there is no... Um, uh, doubt to their claims when they they refer to themselves as the the Wenyeji, which means sort of the owners uh, of the town in Swahili. Um, however, my, the, the original title of my book was actually the owners of the town, but uh, this this got changed during the editorial process uh, of the book. But I wanted to take that word Wenyeji, owners of the town, and then apply it to everyone else who came later. Uh, the, the Shomvi and Zaramo are, are certainly the first owners of the town, but uh, by no means the, the own, only uh, owners of the town. They certainly distinguish themselves this way. They kind of look down their noses at those who come later as a means to kind of hold on to their control over the town. That We established this, so by right power, administrative power over this town is ours. Um, but later communities would prove themselves to be just as important in, in different ways. Um, in, in terms of transforming Bagamoyo's reputation from a fishing village to a, a globally significant economic entrepot, we got to look at those who came later. 
And so next we've got the Nyamwezi, uh, the porters uh, who arrived in the town um, every year, uh, sometimes as many as the tens of thousands. Um, typically, these Nyamwezi are seen as transients because they, they come, they sell their, their goods, and then they, they go back, uh, back home up towards the, the, uh, the Great Lakes of Central Africa. Um, however, you know, they, they, they did return repeatedly. Um, their success was rooted in the connections they made to the Shomvi and Zaramo in town and uh, the networks that they made. Um, and they didn't just come for a little, you know, a, a week or so. In some cases, they stayed for months because they would wait out the, the rainy season and, uh, you know, they would sell their goods and then they would offer their labor uh, for quite cheap while waiting out the, the rain uh, so that they could return home. So, you know, they, they became a very familiar sight in town. They, when they arrived, the, the, the beginning of the caravan season was part of the local almanac, um, and they were anticipated. The, the local townspeople, their, their industries, right, the, the Zoramo food cultivation, the Shomvi uh, fishing industry, the salt trade, uh, the copal trade, all these things, um, expanded dramatically when the Nyamwezi were in town because who was going to feed and entertain this population when they were there for their, their you know, month-long period. Um, so the economy of Bagamoyo was, was quickly oriented towards these upcountry porters. And they would have been perceived, of course, as, as kind of, uh, you know, upcountry bumpkins. They weren't seen as civilized because they weren't Muslim. They weren't urban. But their, their significance to the town was, was beyond reproach. Everyone understood how important they were. It would be interesting to know just to what extent, you know, uh, locals expressed prejudice towards these uh, porters because, you know, at least in the documents I found, um, locals bent over backwards to keep these men happy, um, uh, offering them accommodations, food, um, even sex, uh, alcohol, uh, whatever, but anything to keep these men coming back to their businesses because the competition was high in town um, and you wanted them, you wanted to establish clients who, who returned it again and again. And they just, you know, when they arrived in caravan season, they, those were the people that you noticed first and foremost. When, when the, the Europeans were there during caravan season, they called Bagamoyo a porter town rather than a Swahili town. So they really made their, their impact uh, felt um, based on the economy, based on the, the goods that they brought uh, to the interior that, that everyone competed for. And even the name of the town itself, Bagamoyo, which, which has a bit of a controversial um, debate surrounding what it means, um, from my interpretation as well as Walter Brown's, the, the name Bagamoyo means to, to, to lay down your heart. Moyo meaning heart, baga uh, from the verb buaga means to rest or lay down. Um, suggests that this was a place that porters came to rest. You know, they would, they would journey for several weeks from the interior with 35 pound loads on their shoulders. They risked their lives uh, against the local wildlife uh, that could attack them. Um, they, they marched in, in difficult circumstances and sometimes uh, came up against uh, peoples that attacked them. So it was, it was a very rigorous journey. 
Um, and so when they got to Bagamoyo, this was, you know, they still had work ahead of them in trading, but this was a place they could relax and rest uh, and enjoy themselves. Um, you know, what, what happened in Bagamoyo stayed in Bagamoyo. Um, this was a place in which the Nyamwezi identity uh, was cut. When you came to the coast, you were seen as uh, taking a step into into adulthood and maturity and, and being seen as a person of the world because here you met the this is where land and, and ocean met and you met peoples from across the ocean so um others would argue that it had something to do with the slave trade but i, I don't i i tackled that in a in a journal article uh, elsewhere but my my firm belief is that this this name represents the uh, significance of the the caravan porters as for the Asian merchants, they were the other part of this. Um, they were the ones who bought up most of the goods uh, uh, from these uh, Nyamwezi porters. Um, they established massive warehouses. They built these huge edifices in town, um, you know, two, three-story homes with stores underneath and their homes above. Um, and so the, the trade brought the South Asians there, um, but they, they quickly brought their families over and built these beautiful homes. And then they built, uh, you know, elaborate, uh, houses of worship, uh, which became the, the centers of community life. And, um, and for the, for the Muslim, uh, Asians, they, they would also, uh, pray and work together with the local Muslims and, and Arabs that came from, uh, other parts of the Arab world. So they inserted themselves into this community. They, they, they didn't just keep to themselves. They, they cultivated ties across all elements of uh, Bagamoyal society and left behind uh, a beautiful urban landscape um, with, you know, the, in Bagamoyo, when you say Indian Street, everybody knows this is the commercial, the commercial heart uh, of Bagamoyo itself. So, you know, these, um, you know, these outsiders came and they would latch on to locals um, to acquire property, uh, land to build their homes and businesses, um, to learn how things worked. The, the Shamvi and Saramo were the ones who brought these two groups together. They were literally the ones who cemented the bonds and, and introduced these merchants with these porters and, uh, and sort of connected everyone. Um, so the, these new groups would adopt these local uh, processes of Utani and Shaori to facilitate peace and harmony in the town and to network uh, and, and, and integrate themselves in the town. For the Shamvi and the Zaramo, they quickly, despite, you know, these, these you know, to some extent, superficial prejudices of looking down at these people, they quickly accommodated these groups at the same time. They understood that their wealth and prosperity um, depended on keeping these groups happy and uh, keeping them um, uh, secure uh, in the town uh, too. Uh, and so the, the locals ad adapted to, to fit these new cultures and networks uh, and tolerated their religious and cultural differences at the same time. Nobody was forced to Swahiliize or Swahilicize or become like them, like you're you're with us or you're against us. Um, you know, 
languages, the, these diverse languages continue to be spoken, uh, different cultural practices maintained, were maintained. Um, and, and so there was this tolerance um, uh, between the different groups. There was a mutual respect amongst them. And then later, of course, when the uh, Omanis arrived, uh, they learned, you know, they, they came more aggressively uh, from Zanzibar uh, trying to uh, conquer the coast. And they, the Omanis struck at a town south of Bagamoyle called Kaole in the late 1700s because it was more um, economically significant at the time. But this attack on Kaole forced many residents to move north and contribute to the development expansion of Bagamoyle as a way to kind of get away from Omani power. And then later when the Omanis tried to, you know, exert their influence over Bagamoyle, they did so much more peacefully and through negotiation and compromise rather than uh, uh, warfare. And um, the first representatives of the Omani Sultanate of Zanzibar didn't have much teeth. They, they were not well supplied or well funded by the Omani Sultanate in Zanzibar. The Jemadars, um, these are um, men who came from Baluchistan, um, served the interests. They were the representatives of the Omani Sultan's business interests on the coast in Bagamoyle and in Kaole. So there was a small number of these police who um, made sure that the sultan's business interests uh, were were respected and um, that there was no cheating involved. But for the most part, these these Jemadars found themselves in order to survive, in order for them to have any particular influence in town, to, to weigh in on local decisions and businesses. They had to solicit the interests of the Shamvi, the Zaramo, the Nyamwezi, and the South Asian merchants, uh, rather than impose any kind of law and order from the, the Zanzibari Sultan itself. Um, so they were more likely to represent local interests than the Sultan's own. And in my book, in the, the second chapter, I, I sort of point to a, a famous, uh, infamous incident when in 1872, the Sultan of Zanzibar was forced for the first time to actually pay a visit to Bagamoyo, um, to the town, because uh, a, a hurricane had completely destroyed the plantation agriculture of Zanzibar and Pemba, leaving him without a major source of revenue. So as a way to help kind of rebuild his finances, uh, the Sultan suddenly took an interest in the trade routes that brought ivory and other goods from the Central African interior. And so in 1872, when he visited Bagamoyo, the Sultan received a rather frosty um, uh, reception by his local own local representatives who were kind of ticked off that um, the Sultan had not paid them much attention over the previous decades. And only now, now that they were in an economic uh, jam, um, were suddenly interested in the mainland. And so it, it sort of shown how the Sultan's own representatives had grown more aligned with local interests than the Sultan's. By this point in 1872, these, these Jemadars 
um, had plantations of their own. They had sort of become, they had taken strategies to acquire money very much like everyone else had um, through local connections uh, in, in the town. Um, and the Sultan was so shocked by this behavior that decided to install a new power in the town, the Liwali uh, governor, and placing one of the loyal families, the Alemkis, to sort of take control from the Jemadars, to reduce the Jemadars just to uh, soldiers and police, and leave the Liwali more uh, in charge of the Sultan's interest. And this sparked a massive uprising in town in uh, 1875 uh, as locals uh, rebelled against the sudden changing of power relations. And so the Sultan found himself, I mean, even the Jemadars joined the, the local side. They did not join the Sultan side and just gave you a sense of just how far things had gone. And so the Sultan in, um, of Zanzibar and his uh, and the Al-Lemkis, his local representatives, found themselves having to bend over backwards to appease all these local authorities by giving them gifts, by allowing certain taxes and duties to continue to be levied by the locals uh, over trade uh, in order to restore uh, peace in town. And sort of the the governor, uh, Al Lemke, learned this, this big lesson. And over the next 10 years, he too takes a page from the Jemadars and begins to cultivate local alliances uh, in, in order to, you know, that he would, that his influence has any effective impact in town. And then finally, you got the French missionaries who come and uh, they begin to sort of, they, they think that the Sultan has power over everyone. They, they completely misread the political situation and they believe that because the French think that they have these, th- that they have the, the support of the Sultan of Zanzibar and his military forces, that they can kind of do what they want. They, they start going around the town and, um, and trying to acquire all this territory um, that the others do not acknowledge as belonging to the Sultan of Zanzibar. And this causes a whole bunch of tensions as well as, as people fight back uh, against the French. And the French quickly realize that the Sultan does not have their back and they have to rely on all kinds of mediation and negotiation and compromises uh, to 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 calm everyone down again. So that it just sort of again and again, you find these outsiders who, who have, you know, a certain amount of power behind them um, causing all kinds of disruptions and tensions and then having to learn the hard way that uh, they, they have to buy into local processes um, uh, that had already been pre-established before things can, can simmer down. Um, so uh, in, in each way, they, they do eventually claim um, their own uh, sense of attachment to the town in different ways. So that can be economic, it can be social and cultural. Um, the, the missionaries eventually will become a place of refuge during times of crisis. Uh, and so the townspeople sort of begin to sort of see them as, uh, uh, in a way, as saviors at one point. Um, but they, they all 
they all sort of make their their own claims to the town while at the same time adopting and adapting to pre-established uh, customs. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, and you bring nicely all of this together in Chapter 3, becoming Babagamoyo, a local vocabulary for a Swahili town, uh, in which we learn about how somebody becomes recognized as one of the Bagamoyo people. Um, and, and we learn about how did you historicize identity formation uh, to be you know, considered by the insiders as one of them through reputation, Sufi brotherhood, and, and gender politics. And we move in, in part two to uh, an accelerating sort of rate of events that takes place in the last decades of the 19th century. Uh, part two, fitting into their way of life, uh, opens with chapter four, the particularities of place, space, identity, and the coastal rebellion of 1888-1890, which uh, you built on Glassman's work, as you've mentioned earlier. Um, and you wrote, uh, in the late 1880s, the Wabagamoyo faced their greatest challenge yet when the German East Africa Company took control of the Marima, which is the coast, and threatened to undermine everything uh, the town people had built throughout the 19th century. The company's actions launched the Coastal Rebellion in 1888, also referred to as the Bushiri Uprising, named after a prominent uh, Jombe from Pangani, Bushiri bin Salem and Harvey. Um, this episode, you take it as emblematic uh, for identity formation at large in, in, in Bagamoyo. Uh, how did you read it to analyze Bagamoyo's changing social and political fabric uh, in the broader Swahili coast? Yeah, thank you. Um... Yeah, so uh, the the in order to understand the experience of you know first the Germans and later the British in uh, taking over Bagamoyo and understanding the community responses there, we we had to kind of I had to take a look at the ways in which the people of Bagamoyo uh, understood each other. If chapters one and two were about how each particular group laid claim and attachment to the space that it became Bagamoyo, that became this place Bagamoyo, chapter three talks about then how all the groups interconnected, how they began to establish bonds because they didn't live in isolation of each other. Um, you know, perhaps these groups laid claim and, and caused tensions and disruptions, but later these were smoothed out. And so chapter three is, is really pivotal to understanding the ways in which these diverse groups um, understood each other as of members of a shared space. And so I, I take a look at everyday life and ways that these people saw each other on a daily basis and saw things and, and behaved in public um, as a means to uh, create a common vocabulary to talk about um, people and events that you saw on everyday uh, everyday um, instance, um, and so people came to know each other. People became to identify with each other. People shared stories about things that they had seen, and it didn't matter what background you were from. Um, these events and uh, personalities were on a public stage that everyone saw. And so people were kind of connected through these different groups. At the same time, um, all these different peoples uh, participated in different social and religious 
um, communities, uh, groups, societies, and activities that bound them together. They were not separated just by race, ethnicity, or religion, but these uh, crossed um, within uh, different social groups uh, like religious organizations, religious societies, um, uh, dance dance groups, um, sports teams, uh, music bands, and so forth. Um, and so these things kind of knit people together and uh, uh, things that they, they, they talked about on a regular basis. So it's important to understand what knit them together, what held them together beyond just, you know, uh, trading networks. You know, um, if it was just a matter of trade, um, then, you know, when the Germans built up Dar es Salaam, which, you know, was uh, just south of, of the of Bagamoyo, you know, if it was just all about economics, then why didn't the Nyamwezi and Asian merchants simply move house to this brand new city that was being built and, um, and uh, take their business there? Um, we have to understand what kind of, of, of local attachments there, there were to Bagamoyo that, that made them so resistant to simply follow the Germans where they went. Um, so chapter three is, is necessary way of, uh, of finishing off what was in place prior to the arrival of the colonial powers. So the Germans arrive in, in the mid-1880s kind of bent on taking control of this the lucrative ivory uh, trade and the, the, the plantation system. Um, and so this is an episode that Glassman uh, delves into just uh, absolutely brilliantly in, in his uh, book, Feasts and Riots. Um, but in the context of that book, he tries to explain why the, excuse me, the coastal rebellion um, took place, occurred differently from town to town. Um, he, he explains really well why locals up and down the coast rebelled against the, um, uh, against the, the German takeover. But the way in which the rebellion played itself out uh, differs from, from town to town. And importantly, um, his work kind of ends just as the rebellion begins. So we don't actually see it played out in the context of his research, just looking at the origins of it instead. So I was kind of curious about the explanation of why the rebellion failed in Bagamoyo, um, whereas it succeeded just about everywhere else. And that's something that uh, Glassman himself is, is interested in, in understanding. But my interpretation uh, of, of why it was different had uh, everything to do with understanding uh, place attachment. Um, Glassman seems to believe that there were uh, tensions in between all these diverse groups, that this uh, wasn't a community that held together because of, of previous tensions uh, based over these, this commercial trade economy, this long distance trade economy. Whereas in the more the plantation economies uh, further up the coast, those communities were, were more closely knit um, together. Uh, but as I demonstrate um, in, in my book, the, these communities in Bagamoyo did hold together. If you look at the beginning of the uprising in, in Bagamoyo, they did fight together. The, the Nyamwezi, all the local hinterland groups, the Shamvi and Zaramo. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, and even to some extent, once, once I started looking deeper, there were even some, uh, Asian merchants and, and, uh, Arab and Baluchi, 
uh, individuals who who helped fight against the the German takeover. But the Germans were able to to exert uh, just a brutal use of firepower against Bagamoyo during this uprising. They leveled two thirds of the town uh, from their gunboats and then their uh, armed invasion. They were able to do this in Bagamoyo, and they couldn't do so elsewhere because um, their agents were either uh, imprisoned um, or the other towns just weren't as lucrative as Bagamoyo. Bagamoyo, I mean, the Germans always had their sights on Bagamoyo as the, as the pearl of their German East Africa uh, uh, colony. Um, this was where the most of the... Um, this was where most of the, the trade came through. When they tried to build up Dar es Salaam, they had a very difficult time encouraging the merchants and porters to come there. Um, and, and no big surprise, um, the, the Germans would have been at an advantage with control over the land. So they were very keen on being able to, to secure uh, Bagamoyo and the economy uh, that filtered through it. So they... they they brutalized this town and they quickly, you know, they, they sent all the rebels fleeing and then kind of one by one uh, in, in the aftermath of this attack, uh, some of the, the local leaders began to kind of sue for peace to, to kind of figure out if there is another way perhaps of, of, uh, of working things out. But um, before that could happen, we begin to see instances of uh, looting in the town and people being um, uh, uh, bought uh, or, or stolen as slaves, taken as slaves for the, the local slave market. And um, initially this was perceived to be the, the local people. And I, I found this uh, really surprising um, given the level of attachments um, the preceding decades. And so taking a, taking a very, you know, taking a microscope and just zooming in on one town of the entire coastline during the, the uprising um, allows us to get a more complicated and nuanced understanding of what actually happened. You know, when you're taking such a large territory that that Glassman covered, you sometimes the details get get lost um, when you're, you're trying to create this bigger picture. But in doing this sort of micro history, you, you start to learn, you know, if you can go through year by year or even week by week, uh, as I was able to do so, um, you find that, uh, that, that the loyalty, the attachments shone through. Um, they, the, the people um, didn't do these things. In fact, it was outsiders, um, other Swahili outsiders from towns further up the coast, um, ones that had been spared uh, by the Germans. Those rebels were now coming down uh, to allegedly to help Bagamoyo, although there were some motivations also of trying to uh, tap into and control aspects of the economic trade. Um, and so by sort of taking a local approach, you begin to see um, a, a very important reminder that the Swahili were not a homogenous society up and down the, the East African coast. Yes, they had shared characteristics, but they still understood themselves as members of different ports. Um, kind of going back to the earlier point I made that each cosmopolitan town is rooted in its own environment. And so those Swahili that came from other places like uh, uh, Windy, Sadani, Pangani, um, 
alienated themselves from the locals. They, they had no, these outsider Swahili had no attachments. They came and they stole uh, food and people um, in order to, to kind of survive while they were trying to attack the Germans. But they, um, they completely disrespected um, uh, local relationships, local power, local connections, local bonds um, out of their own selfish interests. So it was these outsiders which um, uh, actually were, were the ones that were, were doing all these, this kind of negative activity. Um, and soon you actually start seeing um, people from Bagamoyo uh, trying to turn these people in, trying to direct the German wrath to these outsiders rather than, than themselves. Many of, of the locals sought refuge at the French mission. There were thousands of, of Wabagamoyo who took refuge at the French mission um, also just to protect themselves from the predations of these Swahili outsiders from further up the coast. Um, and furthermore, if you look at other um, travel accounts from Europeans who brought Zanzibari Swahili over to Bagamoyo as part of their caravans, you often find these stories where the, the Zanzibari Swahili uh, fell out, had serious falling outs with the local uh, Bagamoyo Swahili community, getting into fights, people being thrown in jail, causing all kinds of disturbances that people like, uh, you know, Henry Stanley um, found themselves having to lead showeries of their own, you know, a European at the head of a showery, this just transparent judicial system to ease tension among the, the, the various uh, communities uh, that were at each other's throats. Um, so it's the, the, the episode is the, the uprising is, is, a, is a clear reminder that, in fact, um, we, we got to be careful not to assume all Swahili were alike. And then we begin to understand why Bagamoyo Bagamoyo's rebellion, as well organized as it was between all the diverse groups of people, just as it was in, in places like Pangani that, that Gladsman um, focuses upon, were quickly crushed because the Germans were able and willing to do what they did to Bagamoyo uh, because they could and because um, uh, Bagamoyo was, was worth it. Um, and that any kind of community falling out uh, can be blamed on uh, outsiders, uh, not locals. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just uh, kind of using my, my framework offered a, a, not, a, not a different understanding of why the uprising happened, which I, I, I firmly agree with, with Glassman on that score. But the way in which it played out was, was, was rather different. Um, and I think the answer to that has a lot to do with understanding each place of the uprising as its own separate community. This was not something that was, uh, there was not widespread organization um, and, and coordination, but there were many local responses uh, to the German takeover. Indeed. And, and that's why we need more studies of locales along the Swahili coast to really understand these, these dynamics that we don't catch by zooming out, looking at the entire coast. Exactly. I agree. Uh, in Chapter 5, Colonial Power, Community Identity and Consultation. In Chapter 6, quote, Curing the Cancer of the Colony, Undermining Local Attachment. Uh, I would like to learn how did Bagamoyo experience the transition from World War I, from German to British colonialism, and, and the fields that you examine, which, which are education, leisure, public infrastructures, and governments. Okay. Yeah, there, there is 
So, I mean, uh, Tanzania history is, is interesting because it's one of the few colonies that sees a, a double colonial period, first the Germans and then, and then later the British. Um, but what's significant about, and, and by the way, I mean, World War I was just devastating to, to Bagamoyo. It was almost like uh, the Bushiri uprising all over again, that the, the British had a whole naval fleet. Uh, off the coast and they bombarded it and for the the second time in probably in people's living memory because there's only about 30 years that separated the uprising from world war one in bagamoyo the the town was just well was burned to the ground by the 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 british bombardment um so uh uh, a, a good friend and colleague of mine michelle moyd is is uh sort of writing this this history about the experience of World War One in East Africa. There's just a, a lot there that I learned that I had no idea when uh, about World War One scope. Anyways, um, thereafter, the, the British took over by 1916, so even before um, uh, the war was over. Um, but what's significant about this transition between the two colonial powers is the British really begin to kind of divide and rule the community of Bagamoyo. As far as the Germans were concerned, everyone who wasn't them were be treated roughly the same. Um, there wasn't really necessarily any privilege given to uh, the Indian community, the Arab community, and the African community, loosely uh, categorized, of course. Um, they were all sort of treated with a, a kind of a similar contempt in a way. Um, and uh, as just kind of uh, beneath, there wasn't as much a... a, a in, imposition of a racial hierarchy that we see once the British settle down in the 1920s. And they begin to peel off pieces of the community from itself, uh, mostly in the South Asian uh, community. So because the British have already have a colony in India for over a hundred years or so, um, they, they quickly um, make it known that the, the South Asian communities will be um, administered differently than everybody else. So they're kind of the first group who acquires a separate judicial system. Um, So they're kind of ruled indirectly through their own culture and and practices. And then later, the British expand that to include the Shamvi or the Swahili community, Um, anyone who has a connection to Islam or an Arab identity, they become the next community that the British say, you know, would you like to be, uh, would you like to be treated separately when it comes to, to law and order? And it's kind of interesting because at first the sort of Arab slash Baluchi slash Shamvi community uh, agree, like why not? Um, certainly, after seeing how the the South Asians have their own system, uh, they agree to this. Um, but then they kind of quickly begin to see that it blows up in their face, uh, and that they would be better off sticking to what they know and, and dealing with the local community. They have more influence as part of the the pre British community and and their own systems of of showery than, uh, you know, uh, deferring to British courts instead, which sometimes could be, uh, could, could go against them. So, um, but that said, by, by creating these separate courts, what begins to happen is this, this history 
of these communities working together, of being beholden and responsible to each other, uh, is eroded uh, under the, the British period as they, they kind of divide them up. And so we, we begin to see the communities somewhat fractured. Now, it doesn't happen wholesale. Maybe in terms of law and justice, um, the, the community is fractured, but the general everyday practice of life still holds true, still keeps the communities together. So you still see South Asian, wealthier South Asian merchants um, perform acts of philanthropy by um, uh, providing uh, and contributing to, to schools and, and clinics and so forth by sponsoring sports teams and local cultural associations, getting involved that way still makes them <clears throat> beholden to those communities. And of course, um, they uh, also have to, uh, you know, they're still catering as merchants to these communities, providing services. They're still beholden to the, their, their clients and customers. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, the Germans had eventually, were able eventually to undermine the economy of Bagamoyo by simply building an extremely expensive railway network from Dar es Salaam into the interior. And it just became more efficient and cheaper to use the railway rather than hiring out, you know, hundreds of porters to carry goods up and, and uh, up and down the, uh, uh, the interior of Africa. Um, and so basically Dar es Salaam by the by after World War One uh, does become the economic center of the colony. And uh, we, we see the, the porters disappear and then much of the South Asian community begins to um, move its businesses uh, to the to the new capital of Dar es Salaam. Um, but they hold on to their properties there. Um, there there's still the sense of. Uh, emotional attachment uh, uh, to the town, um, despite these important uh, shifts. Um, you, when I was there, you know, on weekends, you could see um, South Asian families returning and picnicking. They would come and spend the day in Bagamoyo and go visit the properties that they still own. Some of which have become ruins by this time, but. Nonetheless, there did seem to be this, you know, teaching their younger generations where where wealth had come from and where their family roots had come from. So there was still the sense of emotional attachment uh, after the heyday of the caravan trade was gone. Um, but that uh, that process, uh, I mean, that process of, of economic undermining took decades and uh, and was extremely expensive. And all the communities came together really to resist as much as they could until finally it, it, they just couldn't. So um, it wasn't just like they abandoned Bagamoyo just because the Germans had gone to Dar es Salaam. Um, it, it was a long and complicated process. But yeah, under the, the British period, um, these, these bonds begin to uh, weaken somewhat. That said, you know, under the, the British period, new, new people do come to Bagamoyo because they, they see it as a place that is not as oppressive as Dar es Salaam. Since Dar es Salaam becomes the focus, Bagamoyo the, doesn't have as, as heavy uh, uh, an authoritative presence. And so people feel freer, I guess, in Bagamoyo to, to do as they always uh, do. And... Um, and so people do continue to, to come uh, uh, to Bagamoyo. Um, 
in in even though the British do drive wedges between the different communities, the Wabagamoyo find different ways to kind of get around that or, or even sort of take advantage of the kinds of institutions that the Europeans brought to their town and use them in, in unexpected ways to foment, to cultivate new social community bonds and attachment. And you mentioned education, right? So both the Germans, the Germans introduced a secular European education during the 1890s, and the the British continue with that tradition during their period of rule as well. And so the Europeans built schoolhouses and instituted uh, new curriculums, um, instituted new curriculums uh, to to kind of create a uh, a labor force, if you will, that would serve them as. Uh, uh, in different capacities, but in doing so, um, they the schoolhouses united, continue to unite uh, South Asians, Africans, Arabs, uh, and so forth. Uh, they all shared the same schoolhouse. Maybe from time to time, you know, the um, the the South Asian school children would go take uh, uh, Hindu lessons or something to that effect. Um, but um, they, they would be taught together and play in the schoolyard. They would foment these, you know, schoolyard friendships that, that bound the kids to each other. Um, and for the kids who came from the hinterland, this was a great way for them to develop bonds with the, uh, the, the urban school children. And in many ways, actually, um, the uh, hinterland children would follow their urban chums to the madrasas so the, the, the European schools did not replace the Islamic schools. Um, and in fact, the Europeans were very conscious of making sure that the secular curriculum did not interfere with the religious curriculum, that they did not make enemies of the religious leaders, the Muslim leaders in town, and uh, that the school schedule respected um, the Islamic school schedule. And so hinterland children would follow their urban uh, school chums from the, the secular schoolyard to the madrasa schoolyard. And in fact, that facilitated the spread of Islam uh, in, into uh, uh, the hinterland. So in different ways, you know, community still held together. Um, and another way I demonstrate that is in the final chapter, which looks at sort of a comparative examination of German and uh, British uh, impact economically on the town. Um, during World War II, uh, under the British period, uh, the British introduced rationing. Um, they forbid all kinds of things that the um, the locals could buy. And so as a response to that, uh, the, the local Wabagamoyo cultivated these uh, complicated and expansive smuggling networks um, uh, magendo uh, became this uh, household word uh, meaning smuggling. And so from bringing things illegally from Zanzibar to the mainland and vice versa and getting the word out and, and selling these things and, and smuggling these things uh, was something that crisscrossed uh, so many different occupations and identities um, and, and bound these people together in, you know, in, in being able to acquire things like uh, uh, clothing, uh, luxury items like sugar, or playing cards and things like that. And, and even just bringing rice and food staples from Bagamoyo to, to Zanzibar. 
Um, you know, the, the British shut down um, the night fishing industry. Uh, the, the fishermen would go out and uh, catch kingfish uh, using uh, phosphorus on their fishing lines at night. The British didn't want, you know, these fish are going, fishermen going all out with these luminous uh, fishing lines that might uh, call attention to, uh, to you know, enemy, enemy uh, powers like the Germans. So having been deprived of uh, the fishing industry, the fisher folk then turned their boats over to smuggling and to transporting um, goods and people between Zanzibar and uh, the coastline at night. So despite the best efforts uh, of, of the British to kind of divide and conquer and, and thus try to manage their colony more, uh, more easily from their perspective, the, the Wabagamoyo still found ways to um, use these connections and uh, social and commercial bonds to, um, to survive um, and, and, and even uh, uh, prosper. Thank you for walking us through this uh, uh, trajectory uh, of, of yeah of transition from the colonial rule of the German to the British, and 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 we move now to to the first part of the 20th century, in the epilogue, uh, in which we uh, we learn about the emergence of Tanzanian nationalism. Uh, I would like to to ask how was Bagamoyo reimagined and reinvented. Uh, by the locals, and in what ways the collective memory of the Wabagamoyo reflected uh, on their identity, their past, uh, and the present state of their town? Yeah, um, thank you. So, um, you know, I put the nationalism period into the epilogue because this was one area that I had not fleshed out as as deeply as the other periods, uh, the first three periods of my research. And I kind of left it an open question, hoping that somebody would come along and really begin to explore nationalism from a local perspective um, uh, and, and see if there were not ways in which local communities, urban communities um, resisted uh, nationalist agendas of the, the 50s and 60s. Because we, we have this kind of perception that uh, nationalism begins in cities because they are these cosmopolitan polyglot societies where uh, Africans from all different parts of colonies mixed and mingled and where lots of people came together. So this was seemed to be a very practical and, and easy way to begin spreading nationalist ideas uh, and creating political parties that would appeal to, to different uh, uh, Africans um, from across the colony. And, you know, Mbagamoyo was no different uh, in, in that uh, capacity. And, but, you know, when the first nationalists came to Bagamoyo uh, in the 50s, um, they, it, it took them a while. It took them a while to sell this idea of nationalism to make the people at Bagamoyo think of themselves as part of a country rather than just members of a shared community. Um, and so that moment is, is really interesting um, and some of the struggles that the Tanzania and African National Union uh, encountered while trying to politicize and, and get people on board. Um, the, 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 the representatives of Tanu were very smart in that they quickly tapped into local networks and local leaders first to, uh, as a way to, to, to get people on board. It wasn't like they just kind of held rallies and hope people will come, but they were very savvy about understanding, identifying and understanding 
um, local reputations, uh, people who were who held tremendous influence over town, and then using those people to help spread the word or convincing them first of the merit of their their nationalist argument, and then bringing them on board. But uh, it, it wasn't easy for them, and I, and later, you know, more recently, I've I've discovered that. Uh, there was a rival political party in town that Bagamoya was not necessarily first and foremost to Tanu town um, uh, as much as my informants uh, wanted me to believe. Um, some new evidence has come to light that there was a, a, a rival political power that uh, um, could have almost uh, um, stolen the election uh, locally. But basically, you know, um, the, the people of Bagamoyo, at least the, the, in my interviews, told me that, that Tanzania, or, or Tanganyika as it first was, wasn't important to them. That was something that, that was important to the Europeans. They, they understood that Bagamoyo was a part of Germany, East Africa, and then uh, Tanganyika. But um, it, it was what, what the local events were of more relevance to them than you know, abstract symbolism of, of Tanu's message or a national flag. Um, they, they, they were more keen on, well, how would Tanu serve them? How, how would Tanu uh, serve the interests of, of the Wabagamoyo? Not how could Wabagamoyo uh, serve Tanu? And so this is something that um, uh, Tanu struggled with in the, the first few years following um, independence after 1961. But it's not something I pursue uh, very far in between. Many of the people, I mean, after you know, decades of, of living through uh, Tanu, kind of saw themselves as you know, helping Julius Nyerere win his election, that they came together to provide money to help sponsor his trips to the... Um, to the United Nations to plea a case for independence and, and other ways uh, uh, of turning out in the streets for Tanu rallies and so forth. But when you go back to the, the, the archival record, you can see a little bit of a different story, the, the frustrations of Tanu officials in, in trying to convince the local Wabagamoyo to get on board with things like five-year plans and, and working together to develop the nation um, there's still this sense of, well, what can you do for us, the, the Wabagamoyo? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I would have to kind of go back to my uh, interview tapes to, to hear their, the stories that are sort of more contemporary uh, commentaries uh, about what does Wabagamoyo mean um, today. Um, but, you know, in my conversations about asking them, what did Wabagamoyo mean? Um, it, it just, the, their, their comments reinforced to me the, the centrality or the, the utility of, of looking at identity from a, an urban uh, spatial framework, that this does have significant meaning to them that Africans can actually uh, hold on to more than just a, a, an ethnic uh, identity and that there were multiple identities um, uh, that, that bound them together. That they understood that in the city, identities can change, that people who were formerly seen as outsiders can learn uh, the, the, the day-to-day, you know, 
complexities of urban life and thus over time um, become a member of their uh, society, they still, you know, to this day have a very distinct sense of who they are within Tanzania. They, they, when I said, like I, I'd say at the beginning of the book, you know, I asked them to my, my uh, informants to tell me the difference between how they understood Waswahili and uh, Wabagamoyo. They inevitably had a much easier time explaining what Wabagamoyo meant versus Waswahili. And they, they felt, at least in one instance, that Waswahili was just this very generic way that outsiders see all black people on the, the East African coast, that it's almost without meaning, very much the same way that people that they themselves could look at Europeans, Arabs and East Asians and, and think of them all as white people, um, that the, that identity had, had, had little uh, meaning to them. But Wabagamoyo was, was certainly who they were from, and, and they understood their history. Um, they were delighted when I was able to bring up things from the past that they didn't think I would know about. And that sort of endeared them, endeared my, endeared them to me, and, and they opened up more about their, their own stories. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of most recently today, um, they're has been a massive project that's sort of been under development for the past decade or so. Um, through the use of Chinese development, the Chinese want to develop Bagamoyo as a global port, one that would um, be one of the biggest ports on the East African coast, bigger than even uh, Mombasa and Dar es Salaam. And sort of to help integrate East Africa into the so-called new Silk Roads uh, that China has been developing through different infrastructure projects around the world. And so in a way, we would find ourselves kind of returning to where we began, uh, Bagamoyo as this port town of incredible global significance, um, of course, on a, on a different scale. Um, and so the, the question now is how will... How will this new wave of development, these new outsiders, the Chinese, um, how will they respond to, to local power and so forth? Um, will, you know, will their money and just the, the, the new political situation now uh, completely overwhelm the, the Wabagamoyo and, and their sense of agency, their ability to um, shape what, you know, the future might hold? You know, already people are, are saying that, you know, they're resenting what's happening. People are, are selling land and moving out um, uh, just to, to kind of avoid uh, what might happen. Nothing has happened so far. This, 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 this development project has been put on hold multiple times and, and currently has been put on hold by the Magafuli uh, administration. Um, but it's something that I'm, I'm watching uh, closely just to see this, this next phase um, where Baga, even though Bagamoyo returns to where it began, uh, it would, it's, it's, will it be a completely different picture when um, the locals really had it all under control? Indeed. Uh, as much as I would like this conversation to keep going, we've taken a lot of your time, Steve. Uh, thank you so much for sharing and uh, opening up the book for the listeners. Um, uh, 
Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and, and, and for uh, kind of going back. It's been a while since I've revisited the book. So it's, it's nice to, uh, to have this opportunity it's, to um, summarize it. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Before we end the episode, we have a traditional question we would like to learn about uh, what you're working on now or what you hope to work on in the future. I'm not expecting you to have been working during the pandemic, but if you have any projects <laughs> you would like to share with us. Uh, sure. Um, one that's uh, been under uh, progress uh, so far is um, kind of an offshoot uh, of my uh, dissertation project, looking at a particular society um, that was very active in the hinterland of Bagamoyo, um, a society known as the Mafiti, uh, known as the people of war. And they are one of the northernmost societies in Africa to have been affected by the Imfakane uh, of the Zulu in South Africa. Um, so a society that was influenced by the, the, the Zulu um, military, political, social structure, the, the Mafidi uh, emulated that uh, way up in central Tanzania. And it's a society that had uh, an impact. They attacked uh, Bagamoyo um, during the Bushiri uprising. And I hadn't found very much about them uh, uh, at the time of writing my dissertation. And I always thought that uh, they might make an interesting uh, side project. And so since then, I have written uh, an article uh, about their activity and sort of taking a step. Uh, it's still one foot planted in the framework of identity. Who were these Mafiti? How were they understood by other Africans? Um, uh, who made up the, the how did the Mafiti understand themselves? Um, but now sort of moving into military history, uh, uh, understanding um, uh, how they uh, organized themselves, what motivated this so-called martial culture, this militaristic society uh, that the Germans became later fascinated by. Um, they, they kind of, the Germans hoped to, uh, not only had they fought the Mafidi on a number of occasions, but the Germans wanted to incorporate the Mafidi into their own um, police forces, their own uh, imperial army. Uh, so that is uh, an article that I finished, and it's been contributed to a volume of essays about um, uh, martial races in African uh, history. Um, this has been edited by Miles Osborne and is currently under consideration uh, under a new series by Ohio University Press about uh, African military history, edited by um, uh, Alicia Decker. Uh, and I know there's someone else I've, I've forgotten. Um, but that's been about it thus far. Um, I have, like uh, you noted at the beginning, I, I have left academia for the time being. Um, I'm focusing my energy right now on uh, being a, uh, a high school teacher at Horace Mann Private School. Um, it puts me in a unique position where in a high school I can still teach my expertise, my Africa, I can create courses for grade 11 and 12 students. Um, and, uh, but now I got to have to focus on uh, teaching them uh, over the course of the school year. So for the next couple of years, few years, I'm, I'm probably not going to be as active in new research projects while I devote my time to this career shift. Um, but I do kind of hope to uh, uh, return to research later on, probably from a perspective of, of pedagogy, 
um, uh, rather than uh, new research. So joining the ranks, hopefully, of, of luminaries like Trevor Getz and Jennifer Hart, who have um, sort of taken on uh, pushing the boundaries of how we teach African history to um, university and, and high school students. Thank you, Steve. Uh, and this is really useful to distill the information of you know, academic research for different audiences. Um, uh, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored making identity on the Swahili coast, urban life, community, and belonging in Bagamoyo, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.